Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. This is the word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth it shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is rich. Your word is full of things we need to grasp to be your people. This day, help us to see exactly what you call us to be. And help us to become people who are willing to be faithful to it. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You guys can be seated. I want to set where we're going today first by reminding us of the immediate context. Otherwise, what I just read to you is going to be something that you take as a policy statement rather than a plan for loving people. And be sure, friends, the Word of God has never been given to us just so we can develop heartless, loveless, unbending rule sets. Now, there are certainly commands in the Bible that are absolute, but there are also places when you're given a pattern for behavior more than a strict step-by-step instruction book. Well, Matthew 18, if you were here last week, it opened with the disciples arguing about which of them is the highest ranking, most important of the disciples. And Jesus responded to it by bringing a little child into the midst of the group and telling the guys that if you want to go to heaven at all, you need to repent and be humble, recognizing your lowly estate like this little child. Then Jesus told the disciples that it is imperative that you, if you're a Christian, not lead other people into sin. He told them to cut out of their own lives, to amputate from their own lives, things that tempt them personally. And at the end, Jesus showed, it, showed us that God loves it when his children bring straying folks back into the family. So summarizing the whole section before this one, we see that God cares deeply that we love the little ones. God wants us to watch out for those who are weaker, who are struggling, who are tempted. God wants us to work to restore those who have gone astray. And it's in the light of that context. You've got to have that context to understand the passage that we study for today. Now, to many people out there, the passage we studied for today, which I just read to you, is the church discipline passage. Right? Isn't that what you think of when you read it? I mean, here Jesus gives the church a pattern for how to deal with rebellious people in and among the church. And that is absolutely correct. This is certainly about discipline. But in a bigger context, you have to grasp before we ever begin studying it, that this passage, listen to me, this passage is about love. In our modern culture, 
People seem to think that love is always accepting, never correcting, never judging. But the truth is that type of absolute open acceptance is not and has never been love. Love is not me letting you believe there's no such thing as consequences for evil. Love is not me allowing you to continue down a path of faulty thinking or dangerous practices that will lead to your own destruction. Love is me doing all I can, giving all I can to help you receive God's very best. And it's you doing it for me. Love is me being committed to your good, even when that commitment is costly. Love has never been a passive toleration of just anything you want to be. Love is protecting, preserving, caring. Sometimes love is easy. Sometimes it's hard. But if we're going to love each other in a godly way, we must be willing to do more than pretend that anything you want to be and anything you want to do is okay. So this morning, we're going to look at the church discipline passage with eyes of love. And if you're a note taker... I would tell you, make room for three main points, but the second one will have four sub-points that make it up. First point, if you're ready, make restoration your goal. Make restoration your goal. I want to read to you 12 through 15. What do you think, Jesus said? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. God loves it when straying sheep are brought home. God loves it when his children go the extra mile to bring back somebody in need of rescue. God loves it when we love the little ones. And what we study today comes directly out of and in the light of that truth. Now, wouldn't it be nice if there was no such thing as conflict in the church? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew that none of us would ever wrong another one of us? That we would always treat each other right. And that we would just live in harmony. Right now, I just for the first time as I say that, I have that old Coca-Cola song in my head. Wouldn't you love it if you knew that you'd never mess up again? I think we'd all love that. But that's not the life that we're living right now. We're sinners. And we're going to sin against each other. And Jesus knew that so long as the curse of sin is still living and active on the earth, all people will fail one another. Jesus knew that our natures of selfishness and foolishness would lead us to places where we would need help to repent. Jesus knew you and I are not going to be made perfect. Until he comes back and gives us glorified resurrection bodies. Which I'm looking forward to. So Jesus needed to give us instructions about how to deal with it when we see each other in sin. And especially when we sin against one another. 
So before we look at verses 15 to 17 as a whole for the church discipline passage, I want to show you something I think is easily as important as the passage as a whole. Look at the goal. Look at the end of verse 15. After that call to confront, we'll see that in just a minute, Jesus presents a positive outcome, the goal of the encounter. If this strategy is something you follow, if this strategy works, then as Jesus said, you have gained your brother. You see that there? If he hears you, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. See, we want to honor God. We want to please God. And the Lord shows us right here from 12 on, He loves it when straying sheep are brought back home. And so, for the glory of God and out of love for others, you and I want more than anything to gain our brother in a situation like this. This passage is about helping. It's about winning back people in need. In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians about church discipline, really, this topic, what's he focus us on? Humility, gentleness. If the goal of confrontation was to win the battle, gentleness would not be a factor, right? Because, look, if the goal is just for me to blow you up, I'm going to blow you up big. But since the goal is restoration of a straying brother, Paul says that we should do all that we do in a spirit of humility and gentleness. That's not weakness. It's not tolerating sin. It's just a reminder that as we help each other along, we've got to do it in a spirit of love and mercy, not a spirit of harshness, bitterness, and combativeness. Grasp the simple point that when it comes to confronting a brother in sin, your goal is never to win. Your goal is restoration. Now, understand when I say this, I'm not placing the feelings of the sinful individual above the glory of God. We're not going to compromise in our call to present the Lord as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We will not compromise in the call to be, as a church, a display of the glory of God here on earth. That's what we're supposed to be. And for sure, the process of church discipline is about the reputation of God. It's about the glory of God. It's about saying to the community around us, we don't live like this. We don't live against the commands of God. And if someone says they're a Christian but lives outside of the commands of God, we will stand as a church and say, no, that's not what they are. But as we seek the glory of God and how we confront sin, we magnify God. We magnify the love of God. We magnify the grace of God when we deal with each other graciously. We don't confront to hurt. We don't confront to win the fight. We confront for the glory of God with the goal that a straying, confused Tempted brother or sister in Christ might return. This is honoring to the Lord. 
So as we leap into the topic of church discipline, friends, make restoration your goal. Church discipline is not about squashing somebody who's failed you. By the way, how many of you, when somebody fails you, your desire is to squash them? Church discipline is not about a witch hunt. Church discipline has, undergirding it all, a heart that says that we want our brothers and sisters in Christ to be strong, faithful believers. We do what we do for the glory of God and the good of the body. So listen to me. If you do not have a heart that can confront another person with a desire for their good... You need to repent. By the way, think back about the times that you've told somebody off for something they did to you or you felt like they did to you. If your heart wasn't for their good, you need to repent. If you don't have in yourself a heart that can want another person's good above your own comfort, you're not loving others like Jesus. If when you're upset by something another person does to you, you immediately have to tell them off and you've got to make yourself feel better by extracting from them a pound of flesh, as Shakespeare would say. You're not following what Jesus is teaching here. This is not about winning a fight. It's about winning a brother or sister in Christ. Now with that said, With that said, let's look at what we call church discipline, which is a pretty foreign concept to many people in the modern American church, though it's getting more popular again. Point number two, follow a loving process toward restoration. Point number two is follow a loving process toward restoration. Verses 15 to 17 of the passage, we're going to see a set of four steps in confronting a wayward brother or sister in Christ that amount to the process we call church discipline. All these steps are supposed to be done in love. All of them are to be done for the glory of God. And all of them are to be done for the good of the one you're confronting. Which, by the way, for many of you should roll back in your minds how wrongly you've seen church discipline done from time to time. Some points, I'm going to call these A, B, C, and D. You can do whatever you want with them. It's called A, confront privately first. Confront privately first. Verse 15 said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You know, in church life, we're going to have moments when people wrong us. We're going to have moments when we see others in sin. I mean, look, just seriously, look around right now. Take a moment, just look around the room. Look at all the sinners you see. I mean, seriously, y'all. Let's not be hypocrites. Let's just look at it. Yep, that's us. We are sinful people. We don't want to be, but baby, we are. God loves it when we do everything we can to turn from sin. So how do we take care of it when we're in the church and somebody else around the church is in sin? We want to help them turn from sin too, don't we? Doesn't that make sense? So the first step Jesus gives in the process is personal confrontation. 
And the point here is that before you go and talk with all sorts of other people about how wrong other people are, you seek them out and privately try to see if you can help them set things right. Private conversation. In a private conversation, you might be able to point something out to somebody and, and, and show them their fault and help them repent without ever making it a big public deal to others. Now, it should not be hard for you to understand why this is the first step in formal church discipline. Just imagine that you're the person who's messed up. Have you ever done that, by the way? Any of you ever messed up before? Let's pretend that you've wronged somebody. Have you ever wronged somebody? Have you ever recognized I was a jerk? By the way, if you haven't, you probably need to. Because I don't know any of us who hasn't been a jerk at one point or another. Maybe you didn't mean to do it. Which would you prefer, friends, for them to come to you privately or for them to spread it all over the congregation? This is a pretty simple instance of the call to treat others the way we want to be treated. Now, let me point something really important out right here. Is private confrontation always the first step? Is this a hard, fast, policy statement kind of rule that we follow to the letter? The answer is no. This is a general rule. This is the rule you should assume you're going to follow first in most circumstances. But, for example, if you see your brother or sister in Christ commit a violent crime, a private conversation is not the first step. Calling the cops is the first step. Where's Jason? So, if a person is committing a major public sin, trying to get private time with them might not be possible. Also, we've got to understand, folks, that there may be times when the better choice for us when we see something that offends us, that hurts our feelings, is for us to pray about it, think about it, and sometimes let it go. Instead of confronting what we think in our hearts right now is a sin. First John chapter 5, 16 and 17 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What's John telling us? There are times that you might feel like a person has done wrong. Maybe they, you feel like they've mistreated you, but you let it go because you want to be gracious. Let's say that somebody speaks to you in what you think of as, oh, that was a really nasty tone they had. They was a little harsh, a little short with me. That could be sin, right? Well, if somebody's short with me, it's definitely sin. Do you have to confront that sin? Well, it depends, doesn't it? I think one of the best questions is, is this a pattern in the person's character or is this something that feels odd and out of place? If, if what you see someone do is not their normal behavior, maybe the best step would be to pray about it and let it go. You can give them the benefit of the doubt knowing that that's not how they normally are. Maybe. Maybe they were extra busy. Have you ever been a little short with somebody when you felt overwhelmed with busyness? Why don't you give others the same grace that you would want in that setting then? 
Maybe they didn't sleep well the night before. Have you ever been grumpy because you didn't get enough sleep? Do you want people to snap at you because you're grumpy? Or you want grace? Maybe you mistook their tone. Maybe you mistook their intent. Also, before you go confront somebody in private, be sure that you examine your own life first in prayerful humility. Don't just lash out at somebody the moment they make you angry. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Take the, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is really clear, folks, that we're not supposed to judge each other with a more harsh standard than we want others to judge us with. We want the benefit of the doubt, don't we? Don't you want people to assume you meant the best when you're doing stuff? Give them that. We want people to understand us, to believe that we've got good intentions. We want people to give us grace. We should do the very same for others. And we should examine ourselves before we confront other people to be sure that we're dealing with the sins we need to repent of. Now, listen to me really carefully here. Don't you dare tell somebody they have to be perfect before they can confront you. And don't you think that you have to be perfect before you confront somebody else? That's not the point. But you do need to be humble. You need to be lowly like that little child in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter. Now, with all that said, if your brother in Christ is really in sin, if it's either a big deal or maybe a pattern in his life that really is going to help him to get around it, you then have to, as a believer, confront it. You cannot love another Christian and let them continue in sin. Thus we go in private, in prayer, in humility, in grace, and we call on our brother to turn from his or her sin toward the mercy of Christ. We go without gossip. We go without harshness. We go with the goal of restoration. We confront privately first. That's what we do. Take note, by the way, This should tell you that the majority of what we call church discipline takes place without any sort of formality. If you're living in fellowship with each other in the church, if if you're opening your lives to each other, you're going to regularly call each other to turn away from sin and to live more like Jesus. That is what the Christian life together is all about. It doesn't have to be a process. It's just what we do as we walk in grace together. In truth, the first step of church discipline might cover several conversations. You guys may not believe this, but I don't always change for the better the first time I'm confronted. Now, I'm sure you do. The first time somebody points something out to you, it's like, bam, got it, I'm better. Husbands, you should start doing that for your wives, by the way. The first time they confront you, just bam, be better. Women are just cracking up right now. It's possible that the first step might require a few conversations and a little bit of grace. Get me? This might require a few weeks of looking at the Bible together as friends. 
But sometimes the problem gets more serious. Sometimes the person you approach either cannot or will not turn. What do you do then? Subpoint B. Bring witnesses if others won't repent. Bring witnesses if others won't repent. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, if they want to acknowledge their sin, if they don't care, if they don't believe you, it might become time to lovingly ratchet up the pressure. So Jesus tells us, bring a couple witnesses with us for a more formal conversation. Have a sit down. In the Old Testament, legal cases had to be made with the testimony of at least a pair of witnesses. In this instance, the Savior calls the church to be the same when it comes to personal confrontation inside the body. So what's the purpose? Jesus doesn't actually say why the witnesses have to come. I would suggest to you though that the point is to have people who can attest to the fact that you confronted somebody in a spirit of honesty and kindness. Because often, confrontations break down into two parties, and they, they, they say, oh, they, they treated me this way. No, I was really nice. I spoke very kindly and clearly and calmly. And then someone's like, no, they didn't. Having other people around helps. Helps to demonstrate that the conflict is handled properly. Also, the presence of others can add in outside perspective to the discussion, right? It might shed light on the conflict for one or both of the involved parties. Sometimes outsiders can help both conflicting people to see the situation differently. Again, we've got to be careful, though. You've got to be careful about building this into a formal policy, right? Sometimes this happens quickly. Sometimes this happens over time, much more slowly. Sometimes this is the first step. I mean, if, if, if someone's in sin in a major way, it may not be one-on-one. It may be with a group just for safety's sake. Sometimes the witnesses should be church elders. Sometimes they might just be loving friends. You know what you have to have, folks? Wisdom. You need to use biblical wisdom. The point here, though, is if you're trying to help somebody change, you don't escalate matters too quickly. Get wisdom from other people if the first meetings fail. Don't don't expand the circle of those who know about your conflict too broadly early on. Don't do that. But also, don't keep it to yourself if you can't make it better. Maybe somebody else can help you see that you need to let it go. Perhaps somebody might... Just help you go to that person and help them to repent. By the way, there's a real good trick for you if you ever have somebody coming up to you and wanting to gossip. Let me tell you what they did to me. A great response would be, I will happily go with you to talk to them about that. (laughs) I'm not kidding you, by the way. I really mean that's a good response. I will happily go with you so you and they can get that straightened out. But if real sin is happening, you might need to bring witnesses in if somebody won't repent. So point C, involve the church body if necessary. Involve the church body if necessary. Verse 17, the first half, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Again, it's sad, but sometimes private meetings do not produce positive results. Maybe the person doesn't want to admit that they're in sin. Maybe they just say, I'm I'm not willing to agree that I'm in sin. I think what I did is fine. 
Maybe they just say, I'm just not changing. Can't change, won't change, don't care. But when private and small group confrontations produce no fruit, the next step is to involve the congregation. When Jesus said this, by the way, local churches didn't, weren't even in existence yet. But the idea of community confrontation was not at all foreign, right? The, the local synagogue might put somebody out of their fellowship. In Old Testament times, a rebellious Israelite might be put out of the community until they repented, until they were clean again after something that had defiled them. Well, something similar is in view here for the church. And what we've got to keep in mind is that this step, like the others, don't forget this, has the goal not of squashing them, not, not of winning, but of restoring them. So if you reach the point where something has to be said to the congregation about somebody's sin, the point of this first communication, this third step, is about calling the church to pray for them and actively seek the restoration of a wayward brother. By the way, ain't no way, ain't no way you've been on church discipline anywhere if people didn't lovingly approach you to try to help you repent. That's what the congregation is supposed to do here. Subpoint so D. Remove the unrepentant from the fellowship. Subpoint so D. Remove the unrepentant from the fellowship. Verse 17, the last part. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, sometimes people rebel and they stay in their rebellion even after they're sought out and prayed for by the whole congregation. And in those instances, the Savior gives us a powerful but a painful instruction. You are to treat them as a Gentile or tax collector. And in Jesus' day, that's tantamount to declaring them not to be saved. Not to be part of the people of God. This amounts to a command to remove an unrepentant sinner from the fellowship. It is to remove them from what we consider to be the Christian community. To put out of the community. To excommunicate them. At the end of the process, if somebody has been faithfully confronted and they have proved that they are unwilling to change, the church is in a difficult position. Why? Part of being a member of the local church is that the local church affirms together, I think that person's a Christian. I believe their testimony that they are following Jesus as their Lord. When a person flatly refuses to obey the commands of God and submit to the Lordship of Christ... The church has to change that assessment. Has to. We've got to look at somebody who won't repent of sin. And we've got to be honest enough to declare that we can no longer agree that that person is a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus. And we remove them from the church membership. And we respond to them as a lost person. This drama plays out in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There, a church member was involved in an illicit sexual affair, and he wouldn't repent. And Paul said, don't associate with that person. Don't treat them like a brother in Christ. Leave him to his own devices. Paul said, hand him over to Satan so that he might be taught. And he said, and pray, pray, pray that God will bring them to repentance. When that further sorrow, when the consequences of sin comes down on his head. The other thing we should notice, by the way, again, I don't want to go too far down this road before I'm also balancing it. Once a person repents of the sin for which they've been confronted, they get to be restored to the fellowship. That happens, by the way, in 2 Corinthians, maybe with the same man. I mean, it's hard to say for sure if it's the same guy or not. 
But restoration is the goal of discipline. So we rejoice when a person at any stage of the discipline process turns from their sin and returns to faithfully following Jesus. Now, can I just say to you, friends, there's nothing about this process that's particularly fun. But it's a safeguard for you and it's a safeguard for me. We need fellow believers who will confront us and not let us continue in our sin. We need a church to strongly reprove us if we're so blinded by our flesh that we won't see the truth. We need help to be sanctified, to grow in Christ, and to continually turn away from evil. And so, as a church, we will participate in the process of church discipline. That's what our church will do. And what does that mean? That means that we will, as individuals, be willing to speak into each other's lives humbly and graciously. That's a call on you as a believer. When a person refuses to repent of sin, we'll bring in others to witness a formal conversation when we call them to change. I would suggest to you, if you're at a point where you need to sit down with somebody with a witness, I would really encourage you to reach out to one of our church elders so that we know what's going on. We may not have to go with you to that conversation, but let us in. Okay? Now, if a person continues to refuse to turn from sin, you've got to tell the elders. You have to. And the elders will communicate this to the congregation here. We'll do it during one of our members' meetings. And during that meeting, whether it's a quarterly meeting or a special meeting, during that meeting, we won't air someone's dirty laundry. I mean, we'll do our best to keep it as as appropriate as we can. But we will call the church to pray for the person who's in rebellion. And you know what else we'll do? We're going to ask the church, reach out to them. Go talk to them. Go love them. Go call them back to the faith. Show them mercy. But if a person continues to refuse to follow the Lord, even when the congregation has reached out to them after an appropriate amount of time, We will, with sadness, remove them from the fellowship. We will declare that as a church, we can no longer affirm that we know that they're a saved person, a follower of Jesus. And that will also be part of a formal process. That would be a members-only meeting. And let's pray we never have to do that, okay? But, At any point in that process, somebody turns from their sin, we will restore them to fellowship with the same level that they've gone to in the process of discipline. Meaning that if if somebody had to be formally put out, we will publicly put them back in. Make sense? If you are a member of Providence Reformed Church, if you're actually a member... Be glad that we're committed to this. And if you're a member and you are unwilling to be subject to biblical church discipline, if you're unwilling to follow this process, if you say, if you ever try to call me out on my sin, I'll sue you or I'll run away, which happens. If that's who you are, if you're unwilling to to be part of this, you need to come talk to an elder right away. Because commitment to this process is part of church membership. 
Now, this isn't just about a PRC policy, though, folks. This is about Jesus. Point number three, see the hand of Jesus in church discipline. See the hand of Jesus in church discipline. 18 to 20, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. See, this little follow-up to what Jesus just said, it sounds a ton like Matthew 16 when Jesus was talking to Peter. Remember that whole keys of the kingdom passage? And the point of the passage here is the same as the point of that passage two chapters ago, except this time Jesus is not just talking to Peter alone. He's actually telling all the disciples this, the same stuff, that this is part of church living. Now, in context, when he says this is going to be bound on earth, if it's bound on earth, it's going to be bound in heaven. If this is loosed on earth, it's going to be loosed in heaven. This is a statement that the church united has the authority to do what Jesus has just said. This is not a claim, by the way, that I can put somebody into or take them out of heaven. Aren't you glad I don't have that power? <laughs> Neither does any other religious leader have the authority to put somebody into or take them out of the kingdom of God. But what it is, this is the Savior's affirmation that the church, when we function and accord with his word, we will make proper judgments regarding those who are in unrepentant sin. And the church will have the right to make a binding call on somebody to turn away from their sin and to return to Christ. Which means, church, if the elders and I come to you and say this in your life is sin. Now, again, we're going we're to be biblical about it. But listen, if we come to you and say you got to cut this out and here's the, here's the word of God showing you why. You, it is binding on you to obey that call. At the same time, what the congregation will do, if this is handled rightly, is we will actually just be declaring on earth what is already seen to be true in heaven. Again, we don't make a, a binding decision that, that then like God's like, oh man, I actually saved them, but the church said they're out, now I've got to put them out. We don't bind God. What Jesus shows us here is when we work through the biblical process of restorative church discipline, what we're going to do is we're going to recognize on earth what is already seen to be true in heaven. John MacArthur says it this way, quote, The grammatical construction in the passage also clarifies its meaning, as in Matthew 16, 19, shall be bound and shall be loosed, translate future perfect passives, and are more accurately rendered will have been bound, and will have been loosed. The idea is not that God is compelled to conform to the church's decisions, but that when the church follows Christ's pattern for discipline, it conforms its decisions to what God has already, uh, what God has already done, and thereby receives heaven's approval and authority. Does that make sense? If, if at the end of the day we come and say, this person, we can no longer affirm that they're a believer, we don't make them out of the kingdom at that point. We just recognize what God's already showing us to be true. Similarly, verse 20, so many of us have heard this cited, right? Where two or more are gathered, there am I with you. People make that about worship services. This is actually a continuing affirmation that even if the church is small, 
If believers are gathered in the name of Christ in obedience to the commandments of Christ, submitted to the word of God, they can take action with the authority of God. There need be no massive church magisterium to, to appeal to. Instead, there only needs to be a faithful church under the word of God with faithful elders calling people to faithfully follow the commands of God. And again, the ultimate point that we're trying to make here is that Jesus is right here with us as we work through the process of church discipline. His hand is with his people when his people are obedient to the word. So we, church, can call somebody to repentance with his authority. We can remove the unrepentant from membership with his authority. And we can restore the repentant to fellowship with his authority. So church... What what did we say at the beginning of? This is about love. We cannot love someone and pretend it's okay for them to walk away from the Lord. Can we? Would you want somebody to let you walk away from the Lord and go, oh, well. No. We call them back. We pray. We confront. We do it graciously. But we do it. And we do it for the glory of God under the authority of God. And if this sounds totally foreign to you, don't be shocked. Many people have never heard the church actually take sin and righteousness this seriously. But to you, I would simply say this. The word of God is clear. We're sinners. We need Jesus and his grace to be forgiven. By the way, if you've never come to Jesus in faith for forgiveness, I'd love to help you do that. Come talk to me afterwards or give me a call. My number's in the bulletin. Recognize the only way that we're forgiven by God is by God's grace when we come to Jesus in faith, right? Is that true? But part of coming to Jesus in faith is surrendering yourself to his lordship. Have you come to Jesus for forgiveness? If you did, you said to Jesus, you get to be in charge of my life. I surrender to you. And if we refuse to live under Jesus' lordship... We need other believers to call us back to faithfulness. And that calling of others back to faithfulness, to restoration, that is what church discipline is all about. Let's bow together and let's pray.